Well, good morning, everyone. And uh, let me just once again welcome our guests that are with us, especially if you're here uh, to uh, see a uh, loved one or a friend uh, be baptized. Welcome. Uh, we're glad that that you're here and glad that you uh, are a part of of their very, very special uh, special day. It's a significant thing for us uh, as a church when we uh, gather to uh, celebrate baptism. And uh, so let me just thank you for coming. And I hope and pray that you are blessed uh, by being here and a part of our service. We're going to continue on in our worship. And uh, we move now to the time of, of the preaching and the teaching of the word of God, which is an important part of, of our gathering each week uh, when we gather and that we do in obedience again to God. And we have been in a series in the book of Acts. We've been studying through a New Testament book uh, week by week, just walking through and uh, seeing what it is that God has for us. We're learning and from the word of God and what we believe is that by studying the word of God, God reveals himself and his truth to us. And so that's what we've been doing. And today, as we continue in our study, uh, the theme of our text today is unity. Unity, And that's a word that we use oft, often. And I wanted to define it right up front. Uh, what is unity? So I looked it up and, and, and unity is the state of being one, oneness, a whole combining all of its parts into one. Unity, the state of being one, oneness. We worship a God of unity. Three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, but one perfectly unified God. And this God has called his people into unity. But we live in a very divided world, don't we? You, don't, you probably don't need me to tell you that. Humanity right now is really anything but it seems unified. Yet the calling remains the same. We're called to unity. And I, and I think that unity is one of the most, it's one of the most misunderstood concepts, uh, both in life and in scripture. For example, unity is not uniformity. Uh, I, I looked that up to help you see the difference. What is uniformity? Well, uniformity is the state or quality of being uniform. Overall sameness. Now that, that's different than the, than the definition we just put up before. Unity is not uniformity. God has created a diverse people with intention. And he has called a diverse people into fellowship with himself. Those people are to be unified, not uniform. Roger Williams is the founder of the state of Rhode Island and... He's also the one that found the town of, of Providence and, and named it. And, and he did because it was such a beautiful town. He felt like it was God's providence that, that led him there. And, and, it, and it still stands today. He was a Christian, a Puritan. Uh, he lived in the 1600s. And he's quoted as saying the following. He said, we find not in the gospel that Christ hath anywhere provided for the uniformity of churches, but only for their unity. And this was the beginning of the church spreading across the United States of America. And he was right. 
Today, as we continue in our study of of the book of Acts, we are going to see how this church in Jerusalem was unified, and we're going to see what unified them, and then we're also going to see how that unity was represented as we look at the text for today, and with all of the division that is in our world today, and even maybe all the division that you're experiencing in your own life. Maybe it's with family and friends or certain uh, conflict. My hope and prayer is that we can all learn from the message uh, that God has for us. So let's pray and ask God to lead us. Lord God, we thank you for this gathering on the Lord's day. And we ask you to speak to us through your word. And Lord, uh, we, we know we need your truth, your your illumination of the word of God for us to understand even the concept of unity because we are experiencing so much all the time division. But Lord, I pray that you would use the word of God, the truth of God, the gospel to help us see as believers the unity that we are to have around this truth, the truth of the gospel. Go before us now, Lord, in this time of teaching the word of God. Thank you for everyone that is here, for, the, for everyone that, that you have brought here, that you knew would be here, that you have a desire to speak to. And I pray that they would real, realize that. The God of the universe desires to speak to them, and he will. May we all have ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let me give you a, a quick uh, recap um, of what we talked about. We're again in Acts chapter 15, so you can turn there in your Bibles. Uh, so ju- just to catch you up with where we are, the early church is growing, the gospel is spreading, and both uh, Jews and uh, Gentiles are turning uh, to Christ, trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. But this leads to something, it leads to some Jews thinking now that the Gentiles that are professing faith in Christ, that they need to be circumcised, that they need to follow Jewish laws in order to be saved. And so what the church does is the early church, uh, they convene a council and they convene a council of church leaders in Jerusalem to discuss this matter. James is presiding over it. Peter has spoken. Paul has spoken. And last week we saw that James made a decision. And he said, Gentiles do not need to be circumcised or follow Jewish laws in order to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. It doesn't need to happen because salvation is only by faith, by grace. And so as we pick back up today, we're going to see this unity displayed in different ways. And I'd like to review those ways with you. The first one is this. Unity of the whole church. We see the unity of the whole church in verses 22 and 23. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Notice that Luke tells us that the apostles, the elders of the church in Jerusalem, 
They're not necessarily the same group, but they're unified with the whole church. They chose men from the church in Jerusalem to go back to Antioch with Paul and with Barnabas. And these church leaders, what they're going to do is they're going to leave Jerusalem and they're going to go back to Antioch. They're going to bring a letter from the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And the intent then is for these men, these leaders to, to, to go to this church and have that letter read to the church in Antioch. And Antioch is awaiting the decision. They, they don't know what happened. They're, they're wondering, what, what are the leaders in Jerusalem going to decide? Now, I want to, again, rem, remind you of something, because this is important context that we can lose sight of. The church in Jerusalem is, is mostly Jewish, would make sense. So these would be Jewish believers in Christ. And the church in Antioch would be mostly Gentile. And so already we see this is not a uniform church. It's not uniformity, but it's a unified church, a unified church. And so Luke tells us that the whole church was unified in this decision. And remember, again, the church to which he's leaving in, uh, in, in Jerusalem, these Jewish believers, they're unified with the decision of James and the apostles. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you think that there may have been Jewish believers in the church in Jerusalem who had hoped for a different outcome? Who had hoped maybe for a different decision? That maybe, you know, maybe James and the apostles are actually going to decide that Gentiles should be circumcised like, like other Jews are. And I'm sure there were those people in that church. But they didn't rebel here cause a scene we didn't have we don't have an example here of a divisive congregational meeting luke tells us that it seemed good to the elders to the apostles with the whole church and so right away we see something about unity it doesn't mean that everybody is getting what they want because not everybody wanted this but there was unity Second, we see the unity in the preservation of the true gospel of grace. Unity in the preservation of the true gospel of grace. Look at verse 24. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. We didn't tell them to do that. So we're into the content of the letter now. And this, in the letter... That is being, uh, what is in this letter that is being sent to Antioch? Well, the leaders of the Jerusalem church are acknowledging that some Jewish believers from their local church, some people in their church went down to Antioch and they troubled the believers there. They weren't sent by the leaders. They weren't commissioned by the leaders. They weren't blessed by the leaders of the Jerusalem church. They did this on their own. I'm sure thinking that they were doing the right thing. The Greek word that's used there that we're translating troubled. It, it means to disturb. It actually has a meaning of uh, to deeply disturb. That means that these church leaders are acknowledging that some people from the Jerusalem church caused some deeply disturbing trouble in the church 
in Antioch. And eventually that trouble would spread to the other Gentile regions where there were churches being planted. The question is this, what was so deeply disturbing? What was that deeply disturbing trouble? Well, the trouble and what was so disturbing is they were adding to the gospel. They were taking the gospel of grace and making it a gospel of works. In this case, circumcision works. Jewish law-keeping works. And these faithful church leaders in Jerusalem, they see that as as deeply disturbing. It It is deeply disturbing to take the gospel, the gospel that has been given to us, that has been revealed to us, the gospel of grace, and to make it something that humans can earn on their own. I want you to hear that. By doing so-called good works. This is what the text is bringing out to us. In Rome, there is a, a place called the Scala Sancta. Uh, or the holy steps. Roman Catholic tradition holds that these are the steps that Jesus walked up and down when being sentenced uh, by Pontius Pilate the day that he died. So think about it, the day Christ died, up and down these steps. And so according to uh, Roman Catholic tradition, Constantine's mother, uh, Helena, had the stairs in Jerusalem brought to Rome in 326 A.D., and they're, they're still there. There are 28 stairs. And they can only be climbed on your knees. And, and, and according to Roman Catholic uh, tradition, if you climb these stairs on your knees while praying various uh, Catholic prayers, you can earn what they call plenary indulgence. Plenary would basically be a, another a fancy word for basically saying full and, and complete. You can see here on this next slide that the, the people on, on the steps kneeling, making their way up. The apostolic tribunal grants a, a plenary indulgence. Here's what, it, here's what was actually read. The apostolic tribunal grants a plenary indulgence every day to the penitent faithful who, inspired by love, climb the Scala Sancta on their knees while meditating on the passion of Christ and recite the creed, recite one Our Father, one Hail Mary, one Glory Be, and a prayer for the intention of the Pope, and also go to confession and receive Holy Communion. And then the line, indulgence is also applicable to the dead. In fact, what... What, 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 what it teaches is that you can remove one year of purgatory from a loved one for every step you climb if done properly. So, so why, why, would I, why would I mention that? I mention that because here we are in Acts chapter 15 in the word of God. And the, the apostles where Peter is present, where Peter has spoken... James, the brother of Jesus himself, is there. The entire church in Jerusalem. And they're doing all they can do to preserve what? The gospel of grace. 
Jesus died for a reason. He died because we can't earn our way to him. We can't climb our way out of sin, shame, and guilt, even on our knees. We can't do it. We need only faith. Christ's death, his resurrection, and not our works. The Scala Sancta is an attempt to receive forgiveness through good works. This account that we're reading here in Acts 15 is the church of Jesus Christ in its very infancy, in the beginning, taking a definitive stand to preserve the church and the gospel against any onslaughts of adding works to the gospel of grace. No human can add anything to what Jesus has done. That's, that's, what, that's what all of this is about. Nothing we do, no matter how sacrificial, take that in, no matter how sacrificial, no matter what it is that you can think of, that you can do, how you can sacrifice, how you can give, how you can help someone, how you can help more than one, how you can give away everything that you have, that you can do these things and somehow add to what Christ has done on the cross. We, we can't do it. That's, that's what the church here is standing against, trying to ensure we can't let this happen. And when we try to add to what Jesus has done, we actually take away from what he's done. Because he has done it all. He's accomplished it all. And that's what the church here is, is standing against. That's, this, is, this is not just a, uh, an agenda item on the business meeting you know, order. This is, this is the church unifying around the gospel. Third, we see unity in difficult obedience. Verse 25, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Unity in difficult obedience. Obedience. So notice what Luke tells us. They came to one accord. Uh, they came to agreement. They came to agreement. Again, different people coming to agreement. Not everybody getting what they want, but agreeing that this is what, this is what they should do. The leaders and the church came together. They unified around a decision. What was that decision? We will not add works to the gospel. It is a by grace through faith gospel. It is a by grace through faith gospel, not a works gospel. But notice they didn't just make a decision. They acted. They obeyed. Difficult obedience. They did something. See, it's not enough to just decide. It's not enough to just say, you know, I finally kind of reconciled this in my mind. Then it's time to do it. They acted. They did something. They chose men. 
They chose this group. You're going to go from Jerusalem with Paul, with Barnabas. We're going to write a letter and you're going to read this letter to the group in Antioch. You see, they're not only making a difficult decision, but they're acting on the decision made. They're obeying. They're doing what it is they're supposed to do. They're not just talking about doing something. They're doing something. And this obedience is something that seems good to them, is how Luke writes it. Luke is our writer in the book of Acts. In other words, they're doing it because they believe the Lord is leading them to do it. It's as simple as that. This is an act of faith. We don't have any, any indication here that they had a vision from God, that there was some kind of you know, vision or dream or anything like that. This was simply prayer, confirmation among uh, other leaders. This is what the Spirit is doing. It seems good to us, seems good to the Spirit. Let's do it. Let's step out in faith and do it. And they do. Fourth, we see unity in suffering for the gospel. Verse 25, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men, send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They, they specifically mention that. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, We don't know a whole lot about Judas. Silas we'll hear more from. Who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. So not only only do they love Paul and Barnabas, which they say they do, beloved, but they specifically mention that these are men who have risked their lives as they did in Iconium and in Lystra and in Derby, We've been as a church walking through. So we know how they've risked their lives. I mean, Paul was stoned and left literally for dead outside the city. For what reason did they risk their lives? See, this is what's key. We need to understand. They didn't just risk their lives for a good cause. They risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is again. It's what we talked about last week. The name of the Lord Jesus. That's why. A people for his name. And notice how they wrote this letter. Notice how they wrote it. They refer to Jesus as our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ. They're unified under the name of Jesus. He's our Lord Jesus Christ. But but is everybody in agreement? Is it 100% agreement among the church that they're going to exactly do this, uh, this thing that they're doing? Probably not. But he's our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is what we're going to do. They're unified under that name. He's not just my Jesus This is not an individualistic church. This is a church that's embraced community. He's our Jesus. He's our Jesus. We are his church. We are his church. And as a unified church, they're all willing to suffer. They're willing to be persecuted. For what reason though? What reason will they be, will they, will they go through this suffering and persecution? It will be for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the, for the gospel, the true gospel 
May that be the same for all of us. May that be the same for all of us. There's a lot of things that we might take criticism for, right? There's a lot of things that we might be persecuted for, might, might receive some sort of retaliation for, but may we be willing to receive whatever is necessary for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Fifth, unity of the spirit in the true gospel. Unity of the spirit here, verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols. We went through this part last week and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. I explained that in much more detail last week encourage you to listen to that if you have more questions about that and what, that, what those requirements mean. But notice that the leaders of this church wisely mention the unity of the spirit. And that's really, again, that first century way of just saying the spirit has confirmed what he wants us to do. So we're not going to give you additional works. We're not going to ask you to add to what Jesus did to be saved in order to gain forgiveness for yourself, in order to gain forgiveness for someone else? How could we as sinners ever do that? Jesus has done it all. It must be believed in faith. It is a gospel of grace. And then James and the other letter writers mentioned the requirements. Those requirements, again, that I mentioned already that we talked about last week. to keep themselves from the pollution of their previous pagan ways of worship. Do not bring that with you. Don't bring the pagan ways of your past into the worship of a holy God is essentially what's being said there. And so it's not only wrong to try to add works to salvation, but it's unholy because it's not how God has told us to come to him. We come to him by grace through faith, not at all because of our own good works. It's like Ephesians 2 tells us. No human, no human good work could ever atone for a single sin. If it could, Jesus died in vain. I want you to realize that. You might think that is extreme, but there, if there's a belief that I can actually do something to atone for what it is that I've done, then we're putting ourselves in the place of savior. And there's only one savior, amen? And his name is Jesus and he did the work. And so, so it's actually freeing for you to say, you don't have to try to do it. You can trust in the one who has, and that's what he invites you to do, to do. And this is, again, this is what all of this is about. Yes, there's a letter. Yes, there's a council. Yes, there's a meeting. Yes, there's traveling from Antioch to Jerusalem and back to, you know, back from Jerusalem to Antioch and all that. But you get lost on all those details. And maybe, you know, maybe that's, more, you know, the stuff you're really into is like all of that, you know, and how, how many miles it was and how far north they went and was it colder or was it warmer? And you lose, don't lose sight of what this is all about. 
It's about the gospel. And then we see unity in truth that produces joy. And that really concludes the letter. So we finished the letter and now Luke continues to tell us more as the writer. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. So now the group left. They left Jerusalem. They were sent. They're now down in Antioch having gathered the congregation together. So they get this congregation together. They deliver the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So again, Luke tells us here that the group sent from Jerusalem goes to Antioch. They gather the Antioch congregation together. Again, a very different congregation of people. Don't lose sight of that from the one that's in Jerusalem. Not the same, not not sameness. This is largely a Gentile congregation of believers. And these leaders from the Jerusalem church read the letter to this mostly Gentile audience, the same letter that was read and put together in Jerusalem with a mostly Jewish audience. And notice how the response was the same. The Antioch believers rejoiced. They were encouraged. James had written earlier that it seemed good to the Jewish leaders to do this in the letter. And now the Gentile believers agree. They're blessed. They're encouraged by what they're hearing from their brothers and sisters in Christ that are in Jerusalem. Do you see the unity there? They were unified in truth. That that is not uniformity. Very different people, very different place, same letter, same message, same gospel. Here we see unity in the truth of the gospel And that unity produces joy. Again, the unity, not uniformity. What's interesting about what's even happening in our world today is that our society and culture seems to be relentless in pushing uniformity. But they're claiming it as unity. And they're saying it will produce unity. If you just fall in line to the uniformity, pushing sameness, ignoring diversity while actually using diversity as the word to which they're promoting uniformity, which doesn't, doesn't make sense and ignoring truth, claiming it's unifying while division is rampant, right? It's rampant. It's all over. And we're going, well, this isn't very unifying. Yes, it is unifying. If you fall in line. Sameness. Uniformity. You see, the church and the gospel, what we see about it, the way God has designed it, it's not, it's not, it's not, human, it's not humanly designed. It's the way God designed it. It embraces diversity. It, it looks, look at our church, look around. People are different. That's, that's the intention of our creator God. Different backgrounds, there's diversity. There's different ways we talk, right? Different things we like. Different colors of, uh, of skin. Different nations of origin. All good. Diversity, but unified around 
truth around the gospel. And because of that, joy is produced. You don't have to create it. You don't have to, you don't have to try to, you don't have to try to uh, make it happen. You don't have to, you don't have to try to, uh, you know, concoct it on your own. Joy is produced. These are two very different approaches with very different goals and opposite results. And then we see finally, the seventh is unity in edifying discipleship. Unity and edifying discipleship. You see in verse 32, Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And so what Luke does here is he ends the portion by telling us about the unity of the church in edifying discipleship. Judas and Silas, what are they doing? They're encouraging and strengthening the believers in Antioch. But remember, they're not from Antioch. There's been, they've been sent from Jerusalem. This is, the, this is the, again, the diversity, the difference. But they're, but they're encouraging and strengthening the church in Antioch. And the church is, in Antioch is, is, is being encouraged. Luke tells us they spent some time there and then they were sent off again in peace. In peace. Not in conflict. Not in division. Luke makes sure to tell us that. In peace. Paul and Barnabas then remain in Antioch. What were they doing as they remain in Antioch? They stayed behind. The other brothers left. What were Paul and Barnabas doing? Teaching and preaching the word of the Lord Jesus. Again, faithful scriptural proclamation. The most important element of a biblical church is just the faithful faithfulness to the word of God and to the gospel. Again, this unity was not because everyone got their own way. Their unity was in the truth of the gospel of which they aligned around So this account, it makes it clear that the church must be unified around the true gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed in the scriptures, as the scripture reveals it. And that is what we seek to be as a church and what we need to seek to be as a church, unified around the gospel as revealed in the scripture. And as a church, we do things that God has called us to do. So in a few minutes, we're going to be moving to our time of baptism And that's part of what God has called us to do. And you should know that each person being baptized has trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They've made that profession by by grace through faith in Christ. Their baptism does not save them. We're not telling you it saves them. Christ saves them. They are being baptized out of obedience, joyful obedience. You should see some smiles today, right? But the salvation has been accomplished. God has done it. And for all of you that are here, I don't know what you're counting on for your salvation from your sin, but I can tell you what the unified church has been proclaiming for thousands of years. There's nothing else to count on except the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Christ has done the work. 
You must trust it in faith. So today we learned that the unified council in Jerusalem settled the issue of salvation. They did it by grace through faith in Christ. Those being baptized today, I believe, we believe as pastors involved in their baptism, that they also have settled that issue too. And they're going to testify to that. You'll hear that. What about you? Have you settled it? This, this issue of salvation, what is it you're counting on? What we would like to do as a church is proclaim what the church has proclaimed for centuries. That you must trust in faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And be saved. And he will do it. Because that's what he does. I invite you to do that if you've not done that before. Would you pray with me as I, as I close in prayer? Lord God, thank you for the, for the gospel of, of truth and grace. And Lord, thank you for each person that is here. I pray, Lord God, that your spirit would work in the heart and the hearts of every person that is here. And if that matter of salvation has not yet been settled, may I pray, Lord, that even now they would recognize their need to not trust in any work on their own, but only in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will find joy in doing so. We thank you for the opportunity that we have as a church to celebrate baptism and to continue to sing and make much of our God. We thank you, God, for your saving work. We give you all of the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.